Diversion Audio. Hi, I'm Natalie Emanuel. From Ramsey in Fast and Furious to Missandei in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence, and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men, until now. In this episode, we introduce you to an Italian contessa who fought with sword, cannon, and castle. She mingled with painters like Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Botticelli. She negotiated with Machiavelli and fought the Borgia Pope and his armies. Bride at 10, widow at 25, botanist, warrior, cosmetologist, tyrant, mother, general, and penitent. Caterina Sforza lived the most interesting life of any woman in the Italian Renaissance. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years... British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. Here to tell her terrific story are the daughter-father history team of Emily and John Jordan. Hey, Natalie, it's so good to see you. Now, Natalie, in your film career, you've done a lot of fight scenes for your movies, haven't you? Oh, and you throat punched Kevin Hart once. Yeah, not even for the scene. No, I'm joking. Yes, I punched Kevin Hart in the throat. Yeah, and, and I remember, I think you beat up two truckers with a shoe. But which fight scene was your favorite? From that movie that you mentioned, there was another fight sequence in that where I beat up two security guards. In the, out of the um, elevator? Yes, in the sort of bank vault in um, Army of Thieves. Yeah. And that was a very, very tricky, intricate fight. And it was really, really fun, but hard to do. And we shot a lot of that on one shot. And so it was really a sort of almost like a dance routine. And I was kind of fighting with these very large men. And um, it was very specific. And, you know, as the day goes on, you get tired and your punches don't land as accurately. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it gets a bit (laughs) scary at times. But I I felt like when I saw that fight, I was so, like, proud of it because it was really tough. Well, and and you beat them up with, like, an unloaded pistol. Basically. nobody got shot. Yeah. That character and that kind of team had a had a sort of no yes, Gwendolyn. They had a they had a sort of no gun kind of policy. They didn't mm-hmm. want to shoot people. Yeah, I saw they used like like tranquilizer darts. Yeah, and stuff. the the darts was like a thing. It doesn't mean the gun itself couldn't be a weapon, like a blunt object, which is how Gwen sort of got herself out of that sticky situation. <laughs> that was a pistol whip two big bank guards. <laughs> <laughs> Not many of the women in the War Queens actually fought in combat. As national leaders, they were really made to make the big decisions, and they did their work mostly at conference tables in the seat of government. 
but a few of them weren't afraid to get their hands dirty. And today we're going to go back to Renaissance Italy to talk about a woman who fought with both cannon and scimitar. And that is the time of Caterina Sforza. In an era where Raphael, Michelangelo, and other men get all the credit for the Renaissance, Countess Caterina stood out as the most fascinating woman of their time. Emily, why don't you get us started with the story of a woman whose family crest can be seen today on the front of a certain kind of car? Absolutely. Well, they say uh, well-behaved women rarely make history, and she definitely made history. Well, you know, the other thing about her is her family crest. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Sforza family crest has, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's got an eagle paired with a big snake eating a human, I think maybe even a human baby. Mm -hmm. And so that, I mean, that's a warning, but her, that crest was adopted by the city of Milan later. And the crest was also adopted by the car maker, Alfa Romeo. Yeah. So fun fact, if you're ever at a stoplight behind an Alfa Romeo, look at the badge on the trunk. And you'll see a little picture of a snake eating a baby. Absolutely. So look out for that in your carpool lines. So Katerina Sforza, she ruled in the uh, late 1400s. She was born in 1463 as the illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Milan. She was raised alongside his other children, just as they would have been, though. She had a full education of Latin and botany. She would have dog hunting and falconry, and she definitely would later on use these skills she learned in her education. Enter Pope Sixtus, the Pope at the time. He wanted his nephew to marry into the Swarfsa family in order to absorb some of their lands, to gain some power in the area. Katerina's dad said, great, I have a 10-year-old daughter for you. The only issue with that is Girolamo Riario, the nephew marrying in, was 30 years old, a womanizer and a drinker. So that age gap was definitely a little precarious. As a parent, I kind of would say, you know, I'm sort of liberal, but I'm enough old school that a 10-year-old and a 30-year-old is not going to pass muster with dad. But For sure. Well, at the time, it was pretty customary to have people married off to each other in more of a political or business sense, but they wouldn't actually consummate the marriage until they were of childbearing age. Unfortunately, Girolamo, I I call him Girolamo, he wanted to seal the deal right then and there. So after some negotiations, Katerina still went forward and married him and was deflowered at the age of 10, unfortunately. So this was like a shotgun wedding before they even had shotguns. Exactly. Exactly. Girolamo married her and gained some control over the lands of Imola. He would then go off for about three years to just give her a little bit of time to grow up. Girolamo went off with one of his mistresses and left her be for a little bit. So Girolamo's the guy who's now helped acquire for the Pope these places in northwestern Italy like Riario and uh, in, in Imola, places like that. Absolutely. So as she grew up the next few years, she really grew in her beauty and grace. She's one of uh, our war queens that was known for her ability to go through court gracefully and, and had great skill in diplomacy. Come 1476, she is 13 years old, and her dad is stabbed at the altar of a great feast, which is actually how I plan to kill my father one day. Ah. So her stepmom jumps in, and this is a really important moment in Katerina's life because this is 
probably the first time she saw a strong woman take charge of the situation. That would become a theme later for Katerina. So this is kind of like in The Godfather where, you know, Don Vito gets shot and Sonny and Michael have to step up to the plate. But instead of Sonny and Michael, it's like the wife. Exactly. So her stepmom steps in, takes control and shuts the city down. She declares herself regent and kills the assassins who made the attempt on her previous husband. So this is like an episode out of like the video game Assassin's Creed, basically. Exactly. And uh, as we'll mention later, uh, there's a part of Assassin's Creed where uh, there's a rescue mission for Katarina. So good reference. All right. Katarina then goes on to Rome and just absolutely dazzles the papal court, kisses the Pope's shoes, and, and makes a lot of friends. So was shoe kissing like a thing with the Pope back then? It, it absolutely was. I mean, did they have like a shoe wiper that, you know, cleans them off between each uh, kiss or what? I don't think there was a germ theory at the time, but um, we, one would hope. So you've got Katarina going to Rome on kind of this goodwill mission. She's still Mrs. Pope's nephew and dazzles the crowd. One thing I was struck by when we were researching the War Queens is that everybody talks about her beauty. And there weren't a whole lot of beautiful women war leaders throughout history, but apparently Caterina Sforza di Riario was one of those lookers. Oh, absolutely. She was known throughout the courts for her just beauty and grace, and she even dabbled in a cosmetics line. Uh, she loved to, using her botany skills, she would research uh, medicines for blemishes and things like that. So, so. she's like a, a younger Kardashian at this point. Exactly. She's the Kylie Jenner of the family. Okay. So back to the history. In 1479, she's 16 years old and she gives birth to a male heir. And I, I just like to note that because in history, that is all that is expected of her. She is given a male heir. She can go on and live in a villa and be happy, but she doesn't. She chooses to kind of still be a character in her own history and a representative of her people. So they live happily ever after then? No, definitely not quite. Eventually, she and her husband and her son moved to Forley, where they have a 45-foot-tall fortress, which I'm sure was gorgeous. I would have loved to have seen it. Mm -hmm. um, and she becomes loved by the people of Forley. She spends time with them, researches, and advocates for them. And she becomes really popular. Her husband, however, was really unpopular. With a name like Girolamo. Exactly, you know, exactly. What can you expect? So I'm sure they were calling him that. To top it all off... Assassinations were a kind of a sport to the people, and a botched assassination was never a good look. Not good on a resume? Never, no. Girolamo absolutely botched an assassination attempt on a Florentine ruler of the Medici family. At the time, he asked a priest and an archbishop to stab the ruler of the family at a church, but it didn't go well. The assassins were caught and executed. Um, and actually, Botticelli does a painting of the graphic execution of these assassins, and Leonardo da Vinci sketched it as well. Yeah, I remember there's a reading about uh, murals that uh, young Botticelli, the Italian, he was one of the, I think he was one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But <laughs> he, he paints on the, uh, on the sides of walls, like pictures of these guys being executed, these assassins in the hire of, of Caterina's husband. And then, uh, yeah, there's still a famous painting. That, that one's disappeared, but there's a famous sketch you can see by Leonardo da Vinci of a guy hanging. And uh, that's, that's one of these people. Yeah. 
Girolamo becomes very vengeful and paranoid, isolating himself. And what does not help is when his uncle Pope uh, finally dies, causing what we call the Purge of 1484. Essentially, because the Pope is gone, there is no morality. Everyone in Italy is allowed to rape and loot and pillage uh, rampantly. So they get like a hall pass when there's no Pope? Exactly, exactly. That's why I like to call it the purge, because it's just this absolute debauchery going on across the Italian countryside. Just no, like, Guy Fawkes masks. Or is that a different movie? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So, uh, this causes an issue because Katerina knows that her husband's power and titles, including her own and her children's, are at stake. If a pope comes in and decides they don't like the family, that would be a major issue for her. And while her husband cowers at home, she saddles up at 21 years old and pregnant and rides down to Rome on horseback, racing to get there, racing against the clock. She finally gets to Rome and she arrives at Rome's Castle San Angelo, which is across from St. Peter's Basilica. And she storms inside, takes charge of the cannons and points them directly at the bridge where the cardinals have to cross in order to get into St. Peter's Basilica. I remember a long time ago, we went to Europe and it was with the family and you got to see Castle San Angelo. It's, it's still there. It's the big white castle that everyone sees on the Tiber River when you, when you get to Rome. Absolutely. And I, I went back recently, you know, the first time I went there, it was uh, pre-book. And going there with this whole new appreciation, I, I just thought it was incredible standing in front of these massive buildings, knowing that a woman, two years my junior, rode here pregnant and was able to take charge of a really Roman history for a day or so. And, and that's incredible to me. So she gets up on the castle, she's got cannons, and she's big into cannons, isn't she? Oh yeah, cannons would become her thing. Yeah, that's that's that and castles are her brand. So she's got castles trained on the Sistine Chapel where these cardinals have to walk to in order to elect a new pope. So that's a lot of pressure on the cardinals, a lot of pressure on her. Everybody's kind of in a standoff, right? Yep. She has to make her demands, so... She calls out and she says, I demand a guarantee of power for my husband. I demand that he has confirmed titles even before this next pope is elected. And on top of that, I'd love to get an extra 8,000 ducats and reimbursement for all of the looting and pillaging of my lands. That's a lot of ducats. It is a lot of ducats. Factored for inflation. Yes, exactly. Probably like hundreds of thousands of ducats today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't use ducats anymore. Oh, well. Yep. Euro ducats. All right. So, so she manages to like broker this deal at gunpoint with the Pope and all of the Pope's cardinals. And I mean, does her husband appreciate it? She did him a solid. She did. I mean, I'd, I'd have to say maybe he thanked her for it, but she came home a hero and he was still there isolating himself, vengeful, paranoid, angry and making taxes even higher. So she was loved and he was hated. He had to probably have been a little bit jealous, at least. Well, I mean, you know, they say that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. And it sounds like a lot of people had a grudge on Girolamo. Oh, for sure, for sure. And um, on top of that grudge, the new pope had his own grudge because here's this family that almost disrupted his election. And he decided to cut off the Riarios from their funding. And that kind of showed a sign of weakness, kind of blood in the water. In Italy, it's kind of run by big families, whether they were rulers or just prominent in their communities. 
And so one of those big families, the Orsi family, decided this is the time to strike. So in 1488, Girolamo is stabbed by the Orsi family and thrown out the window dramatically. And they kidnap Katerina and her children. Before they can kidnap her, she's able to send a letter to Rocca di Ravaldino, which is another fortress, telling them, do not surrender. After the break, we'll hear the story of both a protective mother and a military leader when Katerina's children are threatened with death. Now, Emily, at this point, we've got Katerina being held by the Orsi family, rivals of her own family. She's captured, but she's got people on the inside of her main fortress overlooking the town called Roca de Ravaldino, and she's told them, don't surrender no matter what. So what does she do next? Well, the Orsis wanted this fortress. It was definitely a stronghold in the city, and there were cannons inside. So more they, cannons. Yeah. They parade Katerina in front and, you know, essentially at gunpoint, she puts on this great show of, oh, please surrender. Please give up. Please save me. But she knew that the captain knew his orders were do not surrender no matter how much I beg and plead. So they don't surrender. She's taken back to some dungeons where she's screamed at by a priest and like kind of like in Game of Thrones when Cersei's in the dungeon and, and is getting harangued by a religious figure, she endures this psychological torture for some time. But she kind of yells back at them, I am the daughter of a man who knew no fear. And she kind of uses that as a mantra saying, I'm strong, I'm strong like my father and I'm going to be strong going forward. You know, Emily, that's one of those things about democratically elected women leaders and hereditary leaders, it's a little different because, you know, for all the flaws that hereditary leaders have, you know, sometimes you get the wrong person, at least in this case, you can say, I come from leadership stock. This, in this case, she's saying, my dad was this big, brave guy with a snake-eating baby on his shield, and so uh, I'm going to be tough. And, and that was kind of one of those things that got her through her imprisonment, being screamed at, threatened with death, all these nasty things the Orsi family was doing to try to get her to coerce the castle to surrender so they didn't have to worry about being bombarded by their cannons. Absolutely. And that bought her time which was important because she was able to get a spy to go to the commander that was in Roca di Ravaldino and uh, with a new list of demands. She sent a letter to the captain saying, here's what you're going to do. Call out to the Orsis and say you're ready to make a deal. He does so. That deal would include, one, pay for his time as the captain of the fortress. That's fair. That's fair, a fair enough. Deal. Um, and two, a letter of recommendation to his future employer saying, I did the right thing. I was loyal. I did everything she said. I gave up when she said. I never forsook my queen. So back then, if you're a 15th century Italian mercenary, surrendering your castle, that's that's like a, a, a minus mark on your resume. Yeah, that puts you on the blacklist, essentially. Okay. All right. But the catch was that he needed it signed by Katerina inside the fortress, so it would be known that this was not under duress. 
Okay. The Orsies agree to this. They say, well, we have our kids. Let her go inside. You know, she's not going to do anything with our with her kids in our clutches. She goes across the drawbridge and throws up what's called the sign of four figs, which is kind of flicking someone off in this time period. It's kind of the, like, I got your nose, uh, thumb between the four fingers. See, that's the thing. When, when you were a kid, and every dad does this, you know, I did the I got your nose thing, but I did not know that's at the time. Dad. Yeah, that it was an Italian, uh, a Middle Ages Italian obscene gesture I was making to my kids. It that was. explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, she for sure used that when she went in. They give her three hours to come out. Three hours goes by. She doesn't come out the front door. She pops up at the top of the fortress and exclaims that she has taken hold and points her cannons at the Orsi homes of the city. Machiavelli tells us that she makes a great speech of how she has taken charge. The Orsis call back, well, you forget we have your kids. Machiavelli tells us she yells back, I can make more. And to punctuate that, she lifts up her skirts, revealing her nether regions to remind them she can make more. You know, that's the part in the movies that always gets me. Whenever there's a hostage situation, like nine times out of ten, you got the bad guy with the hostage, you know, hand over your gun, drop your gun, or the (laughs) the bunny gets it or the kid gets it, Mm -hmm. and they always put down their gun. And that doesn't make any sense to me. But it sounds like Katerina here flips the script and basically says, kill them all. I don't care. I got I got plenty more where they came from. Yeah, and, you know, obviously losing points as a mother. I'd be upset if you said something like that. I mean, yeah, losing points as a mom, but what choice did she have? In some ways, that was a clever bluff to save her children because who knows, the Orsies might have cut their throats if she had surrendered. Absolutely, and she was able to call their bluff accurately as well. In all this time that she bought in negotiations and uh, soldiering down in the dungeons, her brother, who is now the Duke of Milan, shows up with 12,000 soldiers in tow, and the Orsies have to give up. So the Orsies are now seeing this army camped outside their city, not yet in. They've got these kids who they've just said, we're going to cut their throats. And they know that if they cut the kids' throats, nothing really happens except they look really terrible because now they're baby killers or young (laughs) child killers. Exactly. And at this point, they were in no position to make any big moves. They had to give up. They had to surrender with an army at their gates. So Katerina leaves this fortress victorious, victorious over the Orsis. And she's going to clean house, isn't she? Oh, absolutely. Um, While, you know, we see Katerina in this graceful, merciful, beautiful light, she knows that she needs to make a statement here. So she orders the public executions of the Orsi family. There were bodies hung and crowds would have to come and rip apart the bodies with gusto if they wanted to prove that they were true loyalists to Katerina. Even at one point, an Orsi elder was tied to a long board with his head kind of hanging off the back, and that board was dragged by a horse throughout the square, and every time his head hit the cobblestones, it obviously didn't feel nice. Serious concussion issue. Exactly. She did pardon all the women and children of the Orsi family, claiming they had no part in this, so she did show a little bit of mercy there. Mm Mm-hmm. Thus begins what I like to call her Taylor Swift lover era. Taylor Swift is an artist who's described by uh, her different albums and and how some are about love, some are about revenge, things like that. This was Katarina's lover era. She was a fair ruler. She studied. She gardened. She studied medicine for ailments of the bubonic plague and delivered them directly to the people, which I'm always someone that gains points with me. Any direct contact with your people, with your armies, that's a beautiful thing. 
She loved studying science, and she even found new love in a stable boy and took her on as her lover. Her son's godfather also became the Pope, so that Curry's favor politically. Well, okay, so those are the happy Taylor Swift songs, but there's always the I'm really mad at you, I'm going to get you back side of Taylor Swift. So what happens next? What happens next is our Taylor Swift reputation era in 1495, where her lover was stabbed by some jealous ministers, uh, jealous of his kind of pull with Katerina. Uh, She ended up torching houses, she dismembered the assassins, and she even had their families thrown down wells, which is kind of where we see this abrupt change from, oh, women and children are innocent, spare them. And she became really paranoid, uh, kind of like her previous husband. She puts her son under house arrest, claiming, oh, he was conspiring against me. And that was a time in her life where she kind of realizes that love for a war queen can't really come so easily. It can't just be simple and happy. It has to... It has to have a political side to things. So Katerina's dealing with some issues now. Mm-hmm. What does she do next? Well, in 1499, Pope Alexander VI, this is of the Borgia family, is in charge. And he wants his son, Cesare Borgia, to marry Katerina. And if not marry her, take her provinces. Um, she ended up refusing him. She said, I've been married before. I'm not doing this again. And I'm not just going to give up my lands to you. You know, she's the daughter of a man who was strong, and she would be strong again. So this is the same Borgias that were like like in the the Showtime series, like Jeremy Irons and, and his son Cesare. And they've always been portrayed as kind of greedy, lustful, average, almost all the deadly sins the Pope's supposed to be fighting against. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it seem like they were like that? Definitely in this story, and for sure with Cesare. <laughs> so... She had to prepare for war. This is a war chapter of her life. She made sure all resources were reaped from across her lands, and anything left had to be burned. There was no way the Pope and Cesare was going to get their clutches on any resources. She had all of those resources brought into her city to be stored for the coming war. She even built barracks for her soldiers as well, because she didn't want her people's homes to be disrupted by soldiers. Uh, We have the Third Amendment in the United States about quartering, um, protecting people from that. We know that people hate that, hate brutish soldiers coming through their homes. Yeah. yeah, And as a lawyer, I've always wanted to specialize in the Third Amendment, you know, but I could (laughs) never get a law practice that would uh, just do quartering of soldiers. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it's a small, small pool. It's a very small niche. (laughs) So to kind of tie off her preparations, she sends her kids to her lover's palace in Florence and says, I want to lose like a man. That's a quote from her. She did not want her maternal instincts to be used against her again. And that's, you know, yet another amazing thing where a woman doesn't want to compromise um, in order to win a war. She wants to play it like anyone else would. And, And I've always loved that. I always think about... In like the O.J. Simpson trial, there's Marsha Clark, the lawyer, and she was constantly berated saying, well, are you really a good mother if you're, you know, out here constantly working and constantly doing all these things? And, and you know, a lot of a lot of war queens that we look at have uh, have tough home lives and, mm-hmm. and they have estranged children. They have children that they put under house arrest sometimes. And it's really just it's not easy having it all if you're the head of a country. Absolutely. As a final gesture, she puts on this giant metal breastplate with flowers embossed on it, as well as the likeness of St. Catherine, her patron saint, and she girds herself for war. Cesare rolls up with 12,000 soldiers. 
These weren't just his soldiers. These were paid mercenaries from Spain, Germany, France, and Switzerland. A very expensive army, but he's backed by the Pope, so he has some quan there. The big families in Forley, where Katerina is, abandon her. They say, we can't stand up to this force, and they sign a surrender document forsaking Katerina. So that leaves Katerina to hold out at Ravaldino. She doesn't have the forces to go in all-out field battle against Cesare. So once again, she's locked up in a fortress relying on time and wit. And cannons. And Don't cannons, the cannons, of course. She tries to outlast this very expensive army through the December and winter months. Cesare uses his kind of charms and good looks to try to parlay, try to get her to negotiate, which I think is kind of a funny thing because women are, are said to be seducers and, you know, relying on their looks. When we get back from the break, we'll find out if Katarina falls for the handsome man on her drawbridge when Emily tells us about the siege of Forley. Well, with Cesare Borgia, I mean, he, he's one of those villains in history, but he did have his own sense of style as well. I remember reading when we were researching the book how everybody back then in the, the late 1400s Italy wore kind of brightly colored clothes, and he went like all black, black hat, black jacket. He was just sort of the bad boy of the, <laughs> of the Borgia bad boy uh, boy band. And he was also quite handsome for, you know, not just stylish, but he was handsome. And he had so, less pox on his face and straighter teeth. Probably. Fewer pox, kind of a nice beard. And I've, I've read that the popular image we have of Jesus Christ that came out of the Middle Ages was heavily influenced by Cesare Borgia. Because if you're painting for the Pope, you know, you it's kind of nice to make his son look like Jesus. Of course, what would that make the Pope? So <laughs> exactly. So what happens next? Cesare's trying to use his like charms and good looks to like, you know, give her a wink wink and get the castle back. Exactly. She calls out and says, "All of Italy knows the worth of a Borgia word." Mm. Essentially saying, "You're full of it." The second time he tries to come and negotiate, she lowers her drawbridge for him, lets him kind of climb on. As a trap, she tries to pull it close, trapping him inside. He's pretty nimble-footed. He's able to jump out of the way just in time, and he's he's mad. Did he give her, like, the four figs, kind of? I'm sure he gave her a double four figs. Double four figs, all right. <laughs> Eight figs. Yeah. And he just screams, a thousand ducats for her dead body. And she just kind of looks down and says, five thousand for his. So this means war, essentially. So Cesare had to find his way into this fortress. So he devises this plan where his army will try to dig underneath it. In general, I don't think that's a great plan, but it's kind of the Bugs Bunny approach, I guess. But it's the cold winter months, and essentially the Italian grounds are like concrete, and that does not work. Thus, we have to pretty much leave it to a cannon war. Katarina, as we mentioned before, you know, she has some strength in her use of cannons. She was pretty strategic about them, and she had some pretty good experts on her side. History tells us that her side had some expert aim, and that earned her a lot of supporters. The supporters would get into her fortress disguised as pilgrims, um, and they would get through the walls and aid their 
now ruler. Wait, so what you're telling me is that she's in this castle. Cesare's got an army and he sees like these religious monks or something coming by and then they run into the like that sounds like something out of a Monty Python movie. Yeah, I I mean I would have tried that at least once as Chaser. I would have been like, I'm a pilgrim. Yeah. I'd like to come into Probably doesn't work more than once. So no. all right, she's still got some soldiers and she's still, you know, in this kind of cannon war back and forth. Mm-hmm. But who's gonna win ultimately? Well, ultimately, it would be Chesere. Uh, His cannons outlasted hers, and they were able to break a section of the wall to charge through. The infantry charged in, and kind of Katarina's forces scramble for a little bit. Her cannoneers abandon her. Katarina has this idea. Let us pile up as much things as we can and set it ablaze which would create a smoke shield that she would charge through. And I would have paid so much money (laughs) to see her in her big breastplate with her sword charging through that smoke shield into, you know, kind of as her last stand. That sounds like some kind of big Ridley Scott kind of epic ending with uh, maybe maybe her and uh, Mel Gibson and uh, the guy from Gladiator all sort of running at him. Yeah. Well, and as Katarina was prepared to use that, she had been trained throughout her life in sword and shield. She didn't get to use it here. Unfortunately, her forces kind of dissipate, abandon her, and she was captured. That's actually a scene in the Borgias, as you may remember. Yeah, the, the Showtime series. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for Cesare, the man who captured her was French, one of his French mercenaries. And the French, as lovers of women and admirers of beauty and courage, he really admired her. He, he thought it was incredible that this woman held out her own and uh, was able to pull such a force together. He saw her leadership skills, her sword skills, and her cannon skills, and thought, wow. I, I, I think she's amazing. She has to be a prisoner of King Louis. Well, and it wasn't just Frenchie at the time who was smitten with her, not just by her looks, but by her, her guts. And there were a number of Italian writers, not Machiavelli, no. but a number of others who uh, commented on her bravery. And she kind of got a big reputation for standing up to the Pope. Oh, absolutely. So this French mercenary says she must be a prisoner of uh, the French king, she must be treated with mercy and grace as we treat all our women. Chesre was not a fan of that, so he had to negotiate custody of her, and in the end, he won. Essentially, he takes her to his quarters, and just as a final victory lap and to break her spirit, he rapes her for several days, just absolutely violently, and he claimed she put up more of a fight for her city than for her honor, um, and just completely demoralizes her. After that, she gets taken to Rome and thrown in none other than San Angelo. Castle San Angelo. Exactly. Of course, because that that one has a dungeon in it, like real old school, I'm going medieval dungeon, right? (laughs) Yep, just completely disease-ridden and horrible. He throws her down there in this fortress that she once commanded and kind of just gives her time to think on her sins. All the while, the Pope says, you know what, we're going to have a trial because she actually tried to poison me one time. They kind of need to uh, demoralize her to all the people in order to really justify what they're doing. She counters with, your nephew just raped a Christian woman and his army actually just raped lots of young Christian girls. I don't think the optics on that would be great. And if you press charges on me, I'm going to do the same. Yeah. So like due process and fairness wasn't really their thing. It was a political show trial. Absolutely. All the while she was being tortured psychologically in the dungeon and just kind of left to rot 
she was becoming a martyr for anti-Borsha families throughout Italy. She was gaining a lot of support from the people around her who were really just lifting her up. Well, and she had married later uh, a Florentine, right? She had, yes. Um, And that's actually where she sent her kids uh, during this time so they wouldn't affect the battle. And now with her in the dungeon, her kids were writing letters saying, Mom, can you please just give up your rule? I'm so tired of living like a commoner. I just really want to live in a palace again. Please. So the package deal was that her kids would get some like payoff if she gives up her lands at Forley and Imola? Essentially, yes. So she was stuck in this dungeon thinking, do I give up my legacy? Do I give up what I fought for to end this torture and to help my family? All right, so Katerina is stuck in the dank dungeon of Castle San Angelo. She's being basically told, you're never going to get out of this disease-ridden hellhole unless you give up your lands. She's been stubborn. She doesn't want to give the Pope her lands because that's her, her birthright to her children. We see a lot of dynastic considerations by women, especially mothers, who are very reluctant to give up their children's birthright. So what does she do? She gets a visitor. In 1501, that very same Frenchman who captured her and admired her comes to her and says, end this torture, end this time. I think it's best if you give up your right to rule. So like Frenchy, now he's he's really chivalrous. By the way, does he like put his coat down in front of her if there's like a mud puddle? <laughs> he probably did. Probably yeah. so, but, but he does persuade her. This is a losing cause. You're never going to get your lands back, so cut your losses. He does. She ends up giving up her possession of her lands in Forli and Amola and hands them over to the Pope. And this is the part, I guess, where her oldest son comes back, raises an army and fights for his rights and wins the lands back. Nope, he just rolls over. He does get to become a cardinal through the Pope uh, as long as he never tries to reclaim his family lands. So that's kind of where her story as a war queen ends, but she does get to retire to a lovely villa in Florence. Um, And it actually in her living room hung the Birth of Venus by Botticelli, just a little statement piece she got at Target. She spent the last few years of her life researching and studying medicine and beauty and herbs. And she even wrote a book called Experimenti, where she kind of collected all of her findings. Her Medici grandson would actually become the greatest Golden Age ruler of Florence, uh, the Grand Duke of Tuscany in time. But that's kind of where her story ends. She gets to retire to a peaceful life. Well, and there are very few women who get to retire peacefully, because for a lot of the war queens we've looked at, Dying of old age is not exactly natural causes, so it's nice that she finally got to live out some retirement here. But where does she stack up uh, compared to the other war leaders in history? I would say in terms of military strategy, she definitely was not as great when it came to fortresses. Unfortunately, a fixed stronghold is not great unless you have your brother, the Duke of Milan, showing up with an army to help. And she wasn't always going to have an army that would come rescue her at the last minute, right? No, it would prove that she wouldn't. And unfortunately for her, she really didn't win out in terms of the war game often. I'm going to give her a lot of points, though, because while she didn't secure a legacy for her family, she secured a legacy in helping people and whether it was her research and experiments or her direct care of the public of caring for those people, um, as evidenced by the decision to make sure armies never 
looted and harmed her people. And I do have to give her a lot of good compassion points for that. Well, you know, as, as a father seeing uh, a daughter who rates compassion highly, I, I appreciate that very much. And it makes dad uh-huh. proud. Um, so out of 10 points, uh, what would you give her? I'd say as a war queen, I'm going to give her a five. I think good on the queen side, bad on the war side. Fair enough. Machiavelli would have agreed with you that she spent too much time holed up in her castles and not enough time swinging swords outside. So Emily gives Katerina Sforza low points for military tactics, but higher marks in caring for her subjects. That's one thing any good leader must do. Well, that's the story of the most interesting women of the Italian Renaissance. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women whose intelligence, willpower and abilities were put to the test where the fate of the nations hung in the balance. questions for us about war queens if you're curious about something you heard on the show we'd love to hear from you please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com again that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com we'll try to answer your questions on a future episode find us on twitter facebook and instagram at warqueens podcast war queens is a production of diversion audio Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez. Editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Diversion Audio.